1: Hey, it's Kevin Monroe, and once again, it's time for another episode of the Higher Purpose Podcast. I'm certainly excited about today's guest and this conversation, but before that, I'm excited that you're with us today. So thank you. It's always a privilege and I don't ever want to take it for granted. So thanks for listening. Thanks for joining. Hey, I've known Chris Chansey for a number of years now. Seems like it's seven or maybe a little more. I've watched him grow as a leader, as an entrepreneur, and now as an author. A couple of years ago, I spent some time with Chris and got to see their work up close and personal. A few weeks ago, I received an email about a book he was working on. I reached out and asked for an advanced copy so I could read it. And as you know, if and only if I find it valuable and think you will too, would I invite Chris to the podcast? Well, here we are, and I know you're a smart cookie, so you know what that means. The book, Refugee Workforce, The Economic Case for Hiring the Displaced, is an excellent read. So here we go, a conversation with Chris Chancey. Hello, Chris Chansey, and what a joy it is to welcome you to the Higher Purpose Podcast. Kevin, thank you for having me. This is a bucket list moment for me right here,
2: so I'm honored to be here.
1: Oh, okay. So how is it a bucket list moment for you? Because I'm going to tell you it's a bucket list moment for me as well, but I'll let you go.
2: <laughs> Well, we connected almost seven years ago, if my math is correct. And I've just been enamored with the way you have taken your experience In your professional career, and use that to facilitate such great conversations with really interesting people doing incredible things. And so I'm just really grateful to be in this position to share what we're seeing from our corner of the world.
1: Okay. So, yes, Chris and I did meet seven plus years ago, ish, somewhere in that time frame, and we've stayed in touch. And somewhere around two years ago, I visited you at AmpliO. And when I was there visiting, I knew there was a moment coming, and that's why I say it's a bucket list for me. I knew this was a conversation to host and have on the Higher Purpose podcast, but you weren't ready at that point.
2: We weren't ready. We probably thought we were ready, but I do remember you maybe prophetically saying, yeah, at some point, this would be a great conversation. So we still got a lot to learn, but I guess this means that we've learned enough to make an appearance here and try to communicate some of the things that we failed forward on over the last few years.
1: Well, okay. So folks, you listening, you're going to find out Chris is doing amazing work, very interesting work. And you listening and you, Chris, (laughs) I find people to be amazing and you do not have to be an A-list celebrity to be on the A-list in my book. I just love people that have big hearts, big passion, big dreams, and you certainly do that. So let's get into this. So Chris, I know you listen to the podcast and you probably know what's coming. So before we get into this conversation about your purpose, your work, and even your book, but let's ground this in gratitude. What is something you're grateful for in this moment?
2: Yeah, I love always getting to start these conversations this way. So I think I'm just overwhelmed right now in gratitude with our team and the team kind of surrounding me. So first and foremost, that lives my wife, my family, and just our team at Amplio that has given me the ability to pursue this book project and just kind of pursue the overall you know work that we're doing right now. None of this happens without incredibly diligent and Herculean effort on the part of our team. And I'm just grateful that I get to work alongside a lot of people who are much smarter than I am. Mm.
1: Yes. I think every accomplished person I know is in that situation. We're surrounded by amazing people that do a lot of the work. And sometimes we get credit for that work, but we know that we're not the only ones doing this and that we couldn't be doing it without them. So, yeah, the team. And now I mentioned in the introduction about this book, but Chris, and I've also told you before we hit record or even... Okay, so you did not ask to be on the podcast this time around. You just sent an email announcing a book was coming. And I responded and said, hey, can I get a copy of the book? Because I want to see this book may be that moment when we go into this podcast conversation. And so I think I even said in the email, there's no promise. Send me the book. I'll read it. And based on what's in the book, you know, we'll see. Because like I said, the promise I've made with you listening is I will not have an author on the show to talk about their book unless there are two conditions met. One, that I've read the book first. Two, that I believe you would be better off for leading the book. So, Chris, congratulations. Refugee Workforce, the economic case for hiring the displaced, fits those, meets both of those criteria, exceeds that. So, give us an overview about Amplio and the work you do before we start talking about this book so people kind of understand, okay, what is it that you're doing, the context for that, and why this book? Well, thank you for taking time
2: to read it. And I think we're still just in a place of just humbled that anyone would take time to pick up this work. But essentially, it highlights really the last five years for us in launching what is a, a staffing company that's placing refugees into jobs around the U.S. And so essentially, we are working with U.S. companies in manufacturing, in construction, in hospitality. And we're helping those companies that are experiencing huge labor shortage. Right now in the U.S., there are over 7 million jobs that will go unfilled in 2019. Mm. And most of those jobs fall into those three categories, manufacturing, construction, hospitality. And so we help those companies who are experiencing those labor gaps fill the shortage they have with individuals from the dependable refugee workforce. And just recognizing over the past five years that these individuals are legal to work and to be in our country, and whether or not you feel like more should be allowed to come or what the immigration process should look like, for those that are already here and are legal to work, why not give them the opportunity to contribute to experience the dignity of work and be able to pay taxes and you know experience all the benefits of having work? And so we, over the past, past five years, we've placed... Right at 5,000 individuals in the full-time employment with around 300 companies in the U.S. So that's really the essential work of Amplia recruiting as a company. So it's a for-profit staffing company. You know, we cover workers' comp and payroll processing for uh, these individuals, and they are typically on our payroll for a short period of time, three to six months, and then they'll transition and go permanently with the companies that they're working for. And right now, our offices are in Atlanta. Which is where we started, Dallas, Houston, Raleigh, and Detroit. And our goal is to be in 25 locations by 2025.
1: Wow, wow. Okay. So, Chris, I can't wait to get into this story a little more. But before we do that, I want to hear the backstory. I want you to share the backstory with folks listening, you know, because this is the Higher Purpose Podcast. So, there's this theme of purpose. And a lot of people are talking about their purpose. And how did this work come to be your purpose for this season of life? Or how did you, because I mean, I don't think you, well, I know you didn't. You didn't have a plan seven years ago that said, hey, I'm going to start a workforce development company and I'm going to be in the recruiting business and staffing. How did it happen?
2: Yeah, it's such a great question. Because I think there is this misnomer out there that You're just born with this purpose and it drives you your entire life. I almost embarrassingly would say I didn't really know what a refugee was this time seven years ago. Wow. That term, just like for most Americans, wasn't really something that had a direct connotation to it. It may have had some ideas, but I remember being a part, you know, can you look back once you really feel like you settle into a purpose for a specific season, you look back and you see these breadcrumbs in your life that kind of led you to that place. And so I look back and I remember professors who spoke directly about the whole refugee crisis and migration and the movement of people around the world and individuals who were doing certain things that I heard speak or read about. But honestly, for my wife and I, it took moving back home, moving back to Atlanta where we had family and trying to find a house that we could afford in a certain part of town that kind of fit our needs in terms of getting to family easily. And so we kind of circled this area on the map called Clarkston, which is a small community right outside of downtown Atlanta. And I had heard about there being this kind of ethnic population in Clarkston, but I remember saying to my wife, maybe there'll be some good restaurants there, some good ethnic food, but we really had no intention to move into a community with this altruistic purpose of serving. It really was the most convenient place for us to live and a place we could afford. And once we got in there, I mean, it was only a matter of days till we realized everyone we meet was not born in the U.S. And they have a really compelling story. And I could not help myself, but to the annoying white guy who would say, where are you from? And where is your accent from? And what do you miss about home? And every one of those conversations would always end in someone from Congo or someone from Burma or someone from Afghanistan saying, can you help me find a job? And I think they were just looking at me as like the American, you know, representing all the connections and all the social contacts. Can you help me find a job? And so it really was just a matter of days before it all of a sudden hit us upside the head like a brick. There's a reason we're here. And there's a pretty strong purpose calling us into some sort of initiative or business in this community. So it was about a year of asking a lot of questions and eating dinner with our neighbors. Hmm. and just learning about the community, learning about challenges and exploring different business ideas. Up to that point, my wife and I had started a few businesses and had failed mostly. And so even at this point, it was like some of these ideas, maybe 20, 30 people that we can employ at the most. But when we stumbled on this concept of a staffing company, we had no prior experience in staffing. But the idea of matching individuals with companies that were already struggling to hire labor it felt like this seems like it just makes sense and there could be hundreds of people impacted by this. And so what do we got to lose? Let's give it a shot and see if this can have impact for this community. Hmm.
1: Chris, I love that. There's so many elements of that that I love. And I'm just going to pause a moment to call out two of them. One of these is, you know, I host a podcast called The Higher Purpose Podcast. Often people think I've had this figured out all my life and I'm kind of like, "No, I'm just like you, Chris. I've stumbled one step at a time. Things that at the moment looked and felt like failures, you know, you look back and you go, "Those were steps in the right direction. They moved me closer." So, folks, are you listening, just take the next step. You don't even have to see the path forward. Just take a step. And then the other part that I want to call out that I love out of this so much, and this means more to me in recent years than ever before in my life, Chris, but the power of conversation. You learned so much one conversation at a time. Just engage somebody, not a research project, not let's conduct market research to see what the opportunity. No. No. Oh, you stumble on somebody in a restaurant, in the grocery store, in the neighborhood. You just strike up a conversation and through enough of those conversations, you start realizing, huh, these are the things we hear in almost every conversation or every conversation. What's up with that? So I just yeah. want to call those out because those are just beautiful moments. And for you listening, I believe you may not be able to relate to everything, but you can relate to some of this, right? These things of not having it figured out, but just taking the next right step. And then all of a sudden something shows up. So thanks. I love, love, love that. So I want to ask now, what are some of the discoveries you've made through these conversations, right? Through the five years of doing Amplio as a business what are the discoveries you've made and how have those shaped the work you're doing? I think that I
2: had some preconceived notions about who immigrants were and who refugees were in particular. And as I was even thrust into this community in a way, you know, I started trying to grab as much information as I could online and in the media to really create a holistic picture of who these people are. I don't even think I had a really well-formed political idea about this group or this issue. But one of the things that was very obvious to me that was in this alignment with what we often hear in the news or in the media is really defining who this group is as a whole. And so often what we hear is this is a charity case and this group of people, these refugees need to be, provided for and taken care of. They've been through a lot in their life. They've been through traumatic experiences. So we need to provide handouts for them and support them and allow them to essentially live off of public assistance for the rest of their days here in the U S. Um, and so that kind of one bucket that gets created. And I think the other bucket that often people get lumped into from this immigrant or refugee community is not a charity case, but a terrorist threat. Hmm. And it's a group of people that we need to watch very closely because they may have malintent in their time here in the U.S. that we may be opening ourselves up to danger and there's a safety concern here. So we need to watch them very closely and that surveillance and maybe even dictating what they can and cannot do is part of their existence here in the U.S. And so often those were the two categories that these individuals get placed into. But in my experience, through these conversations. It was neither. I mean, in fact, neither one of those could even be close to the truth. What I recognized more often than not was that these individuals were in a different category. They wanted to be contributors. They wanted to be a workforce. They wanted to have a job, contribute to the local economy, add value to whatever things that they were a part of and did with their time. And so I, I heard that through expressions of gratitude. I heard that through people just asking for work and asking for meaningful work. You know, All these individuals had jobs and had careers before they were displaced for whatever reason. They're victims of terrorism. They're not interested in pursuing anything like that. There hasn't been a terrorist act at the hands of a refugee since the Refugee Act was put into place in 1980. So Mm -hmm. that certainly can't be true. They don't want to live on public assistance. They want to contribute. They want to pay taxes. They want to experience the American dream just like so many immigrants before them. So I think that was the biggest thing that hit me right off the bat was that these individuals want to contribute. They want to be seen as
1: people who have value. Okay, so, oh, there's so many things I want to go into here. You've used a couple of words, and it's almost like you use them interchangeably. But I read this in your book, but I'd had this epiphany before I got to that piece of the book. So let's distinguish this. All refugees are immigrants but not all immigrants are refugees. True false? Yes, true. That's exactly right. Make the distinction for somebody that's going, well, I thought those were interchangeable words. Sure, sure. So
2: immigrants represent the overall category of individuals who are leaving one place to go into another place, to migrate from one country to another country. And so there's several labels that kind of fall underneath that category. Refugees is one of those, but you can also consider asylees, There's several categories. Usually, when we think about documented versus undocumented, we're really talking about the overall immigrant community. And there's various reasons why someone may be leaving one place to go to another place. But typically, when you think of an immigrant, there may not be necessarily a reason that's displacing them or forcing them to leave, it may just be their personal preference. When you think specifically about refugees, you're talking about individuals who have been displaced forcibly from their home. And it was not their choice to leave, as you may see with the overall immigrant category, but it was out of necessity. And so you can think about any kind of natural disasters, any kind of outbreak of disease. Certainly the number one factor in displacement around the world right now is civil unrest and violence. I think there's going to be an ongoing discussion around economic refugees and whether or not that politically falls under that discussion of what is permissible to think about displacement. Currently that doesn't fit the tight definition of what a a refugee is, but essentially there's reasons outside of that individual's control that have forced them to leave their home and seek safety and stability elsewhere.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Oh, okay. So let's go into this a little bit further because as I'm listening to this, I've got to also, from the last, when you were first starting to talk about your work, And talking about some of the misconceptions and these myths, misunderstandings, misconceptions around this, all of a sudden, kind of a phrase that I remember from Brene Brown went through my head. And the phrase is that it's really easy to hate people as a group. Yes, But we love people up close, right? When we get to know people. So we can think we have all of these misconceptions about immigrants or refugees, and then you get to know them as people. And you go, well, gosh, they're different, right? They don't fit this stereotype. And I remember, I remember the afternoon or the morning and afternoon I spent at Amplio, how much joy there was, how much gratitude I felt, just the smiles on everybody's face in your office, whether they were part of your staff or whether they were there in the process of seeking jobs. So, Talk about those a moment, you know, this up close and personal versus the stereotypes you may have.
2: Yeah, that's such a great point. And I think it's a human condition for us to form an opinion about an issue or a certain situation without really understanding all the angles. And, I mean, that's just part of who we are. And most often in our society, those who are most opinionated or most uh, the quickest to form an opinion are the loudest voices, and they get heard the most, and it gets replicated. And so I can speak from experience. You know, I grew up in a small South Georgia, sleepy Southern town with all the stereotypes in place. Everyone looked like me, talked like me, act like me. I never expected to call some of my best friends in the world, individuals from Iraq and Afghanistan and Burma and Utah and Ethiopia. I mean, that, like that was the furthest thing from my mind. So it all changed when you meet someone and you hear about their situation. And I think- Often when we think of that, we think, oh, you have this empathy for their situation because of how hard it is. And that's certainly true. I empathize, and that causes me to be more aware of some of the challenges. But it's also just identifying with what we have in common. The Mm -hmm. fact that so many of the individuals I get to meet with on a daily basis and so many of our employees have this insatiable drive to learn and grow and develop this growth mindset that, man, I can relate to. I love that. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast right now, you're probably one of those people. You enjoy learning and you enjoy the idea of just listening to new concepts and grabbing hold of those. So I see that so common in the community. And I love identifying with these things that are actually very similar between us that we might prefer different foods or have different faiths or grew up in a different culture, but there's so much of us that's actually that we have in common. And we find that common ground. The issue, this big issue becomes very personal. And it also gets messy. It gets complicated. It's not black and white anymore. But that's the beauty of life. I think it's our responsibility as human beings to take that step and to get uncomfortable and to really engage some of these issues, especially on immigration and refugees, refugee resettlement in the U.S. and globally. There's tensions around how people relate to and connect with. Uh, refugees around the world right now, and I think we owe it to ourselves to take that step to engage this, not as a big issue, but as an individual, personal discovery.
1: So one of the things you talk about in the book is you share some of these stories, And, and some of these people that you've gotten to know, these people you call friends and that you've helped find jobs, they've been in a process of dislocation for years, even a decade or more?
2: Oh, certainly. I mean, the stories are overwhelming. Yeah, so the, the average length of time for an individual to be in a refugee camp in the year 2019, the average length of time is one decade that they're spending in a place in which they're not allowed to work at the prime of their working career kind of performance in their life. They're not allowed to work. They're not allowed to contribute to anything mentally, physically, socially, They are handed three meals a day in some cases, you know, at least enough sustenance to kind of provide for them and their family. And it's just wasted potential. I mean, it's individuals who have such a strong desire to contribute and they're not allowed to do so. So they have been treated as charity cases. Oh, certainly. And I think that's why there's such this hunger and this resolve to prove themselves when they do land in a place where they're allowed to contribute. You know, so there's 70 million individuals who are displaced around the world a very, very small fraction, less than 1% get resettled in the U.S. Hmm. So, and really when you look at the developed economies around the world, it's only a very small percentage, a couple percentage points that get resettled in developed countries. But when they have that opportunity to resettle, they have a burning desire to prove themselves. And certainly they go through hours and hours, 20, 30, 40 hours of interviews and vetting, In the U.S., it's Homeland Security. You know, even the CIA director remarked that it's harder to to be a refugee and come into the U.S. than it is to join the CIA. So, I mean, it's a very extensive vetting process that they will go through to even get that access and get that permanent residency in the U.S.
1: Okay. So I could spend much more time here, but I want to move on because there's so much more to cover in this conversation. So let's talk about the win-win-win opportunity now that you've discovered that you are helping businesses to discover. Let's talk about that in general, the win-win opportunity, and then I'm gonna ask you to illustrate it with one story of one business that has found this to be the solution for them.
2: Sure, yeah, so what we saw early on was there were individuals who had a strong desire to work, a strong motivation to work, a group of individuals where substance abuse and drug abuse was not a factor for them and their kind of daily life, and they were legal to work and to live here in the U.S. And so we could match that group of people up with companies that had open positions. And at at the surface level, that was it. This is a legal, drug-free, motivated workforce, and you have open jobs. We're going to match them together. But as soon as that happened, we started seeing the true outcome and the true impact of engaging the refugee workforce at companies. And so what we've seen now, five years removed from the start of this process, we see some pretty consistent themes across the board at companies we're able to partner with. And that is that immediately there is an increase in retention and an increase in productivity. You've got individuals who are now working at a company where you typically see around 40% of uh, retention rate as the industry standard in -hmm. manufacturing right now. So, four out of 10 people who start at your company will still be with the company in okay. three months. Yep. So, six have cool. left. Yep. So, four out of 10. What we typically see from the refugee community is right around 80%. So, eight out of 10 are still with your company after three months, seven out of 10 after one year. So, the retention rate is double what yeah. the industry standard sees. We see productivity spike. And not this kind of sweatshop mentality and this kind of like, let's squeeze every ounce of energy out. No, it's just a high motivation to contribute and to work and to be seen as individuals who have value so that they can move up in the company, get paid more and provide better for their family. It's all about creating greater stability. And of course, if you see retention and productivity increase, these companies experience profit increase as well. Then that certainly is something that they celebrate and we get to continue to work together and everybody wins. So when I first described that whole cycle with you when you came to visit our office a couple of years ago you said something Kevin that has stuck with me and that is you kind of used one word to describe this whole phenomenon which is you said this is shalom. And you kind of pulled out this I said <laughs> yeah this Hebrew hmm. term that really describes the right ordering of things that you know that companies should have the ability to fill all the positions they need to meet the demand for their product or service, and that no individual who's willing to work and able to work and motivated to do so should be sidelined or kept from being able to participate in the job market. And when those things are connected, it creates this peace, this shalom in the world. And so that stuck with me since you mentioned that. But I think that really gets at the essence of what we're trying to accomplish.
1: It does. It does. And I didn't even remember saying that, Chris. So I'm just having a moment here. But that is, it is Shalom. Shalom is the right order in all relationships. And that's what I saw. And that's why I get excited about this. Right. And it's a win, win, win. It's a win for the refugee. It's a win for the employer. It's a win for your company being the one that's brokering, making that relationship happen. Gosh, and it's a win for more than that. It's a win for the community. It's a win for the employees at these companies that get their prejudices and their biases broken because what was an issue they've only seen in the media, they now experience up close and personal. And when they think Come of on. that, <laughs> that's true. Come on, crazy. when they think of that person as an individual, all of that stuff they're not, oh, that's not true. I got to know them. So let's talk about this. What are some of the things in the employers? Because I'm sure there are people that have heard other things. And there's somebody somewhere that hired one refugee and it didn't work. So, okay, no, that doesn't work, right? So you're working with a handful of companies that have found this is the answer for them. And they keep coming back. And they're using you for all of their staffing. So what are the things they're doing? To be diff- Yeah, that's such a great question.
2: Yeah, of course, there are companies that have tried to do something similar and it not pan out. And then there's companies that we work with directly that for whatever reason, things don't really work out. And so one of the things we talk about in the book, we have a chapter on diversity and inclusivity.
1: I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you there. I told you this before, Chris, this book, folks, it's not just about refugees and it's not just about workforce. That chapter on diversity and inclusion Is a great chapter for anybody looking to address diversity and inclusion in their business, period. Mm -hmm. So the stuff on culture and diversity and inclusion, Chris, is good stuff for anybody, even if you're not looking at refugees. Get it and read that part. So I'm sorry to interrupt you, but thank you. I'm really grateful for that.
2: I mean, that's chapter six, right? I mean, that's supposed to be kind of the downhill slide of the book. But I think what we were so shocked by is how willing. The companies that we really admire were were to talk about their effort and their pursuit after diversity and inclusion. Actually, I'm misspeaking now because this was the point I was going to make. None of the companies that we see doing this really well and incorporating the refugee workforce into their company really well set out to have a diverse workforce. They actually set out to create a culture and an environment at their company that would be productive that would be a place where everyone could come and be their full selves and contribute and find meaning and dignity in their work. So they set out to create a healthy work environment and certainly that would tie to profits and certainly that would have impact on the bottom line but the goal was to create a healthy work environment and a byproduct of that has become diversity. So we feature a few stories in that chapter on this whole topic but when we're working with those companies who already have grasped that concept and someone at that company has recognized their purpose is to create this type of culture within their company, and we introduce the refugee workforce there, it's a beautiful marriage, and there's so much that can occur in that process. Of course, there's other companies that hasn't worked at, but they're in the process. They're trying to figure it out, and they are pursuing it, intentionally trying to drive that forward.
1: So one of the things I loved out of that section of the book, there are things these companies have done to increase their understanding of how to create a workplace that accommodates. And I don't mean accommodation in the legal sense of the word, but creates an environment where their refugee employees can flourish and where they can understand what's expected of them. I mean, communicate differently. Right. Using visual communication rather than just, okay, I'm one of those guys, I'm like you. I grew up in the South. So what do we say when somebody doesn't understand us? We just say it louder. Right. right. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Well, I think about one of the stories that has really impacted me of late is a company called Tendon Systems. And we mentioned them briefly in the book. But we don't give them nearly enough credit for what they're doing. But the owner of this company is actually now the Secretary of State for Georgia. And so that's put him in a very unique position to kind of speak to the economic impact of refugees in our state. But we were connected with Tendon apart from him, and connected directly to the operations manager there. Who they were just running in a deficit. They didn't have enough people to do the work, and it's really hard work. They're the ones creating these tension systems that line up the highways, the guardrails, and things like that that protect cars from going off of bridges and roads. And so, so based in Atlanta, took on two or three employees to start, and immediately called us back and said, hey, can you send us more? We've got probably 25 or 30 Congolese refugees who are working at Tendon, and they've been able to increase production, go after bigger contracts, certainly become more profitable over the last six months that we've been engaged with them. But one of the coolest parts of the story in terms of accommodation is you see most companies, if they're going to engage some sort of immigrant or diverse workforce, they're going to say, hey, these individuals need to learn English so we can better communicate with them. And they'll connect them with some ESL classes or try to involve some sort of English training within the process. And that's commendable. That is a step that is a positive one. You know, you could do nothing. So I think that is something. But we saw Tendon take a different approach. They started providing French lessons for their management team, not so they can become fluent in French and completely kind of bow down and try to but no, like we just want to be able to conversate. We just want to be able to at least say hello and maybe respond with a couple sentences in French of how are you, maybe understand a little bit more about what our employees are discussing as they're learning English. Yes, let's make sure that's happening. But we want to learn some French as well. We want them to create an environment where they feel safe and secure to come in and you know, bring their best to work. And it just created a lot of flourishing, both from the company side as well as the individual side at Tendon.
1: Wow. Okay. So Chris, gosh, we could go much longer. Time's starting to get away from us here. I want to ask you something about your work personally. What do you find most fulfilling? Yeah, that's
2: such a great question.
1: So first off,
2: we love celebrating. I love celebrating when an individual has proven themselves as dependable at a company. They've been employed usually three to six months and the company's now bringing them on permanently at their company providing them benefits usually there's a pay increase and there's just such a joy and excitement and a pride on the faces of those individuals they'll come in our office and they'll put a nail in the wall you yeah. have a wall set up they put a nail on the wall to celebrate their permanent they're going permanent at a company even though we're not earning any greater any more revenue from that relationship we celebrate that for them their family the community to get to see that example of someone who's proven themselves
1: Okay. So yeah, here's an interesting point to call out here. You don't make anything off that. I mean, actually you are losing in a sense, right? If as someone that provides temporary workers staffing to organizations, you're losing some of your talent, but you don't look at exactly.
2: it. Exactly. In the moment, yeah, we're losing, but in the big picture, every time that happens, everyone
1: wins because yeah,
2: it's a contagious effort.
1: Okay, so what do you find, gosh, I'm sure this is a long list, doing the work you do, but what's most frustrating?
2: Ah, yeah, certainly there's frustrations. You know, we talked about this earlier, but I think individuals, organizations that jump to assumptions that may or may not be true, that they haven't discovered for themselves. I'm frustrated right now at our government in the U.S. Uh, I'm not going off on a political kind of soapbox here, but just recognizing in a big picture, our government has yet to recognize that refugees are not a charity case, but they do have economic value to our country. When we finally recognize that, we will align policies in a way in which it allows individuals, not because we just need to help them from a moral obligation, but will allow individuals to access the job market as quick as possible because it's good for everyone. And you can look around the globe and see other countries that have recognized that and put policies in place around it, and they're flourishing because of it. And so I'm frustrated that we're still not there as a nation. Yeah. And then from time to time, we run into some individuals within companies that don't quite understand it yet. And they don't quite grasp the impact that the economic return that they can be a part of. And so it's hard to see that at times. But, you know, our focus is continue to celebrate what is working and see the value in someone instead of immediately trying to figure out what they can't do. And we see a lot of joy in the process.
1: Okay, thank you. Two short answer questions, maybe. What's one thing you hope this book accomplishes?
2: Big picture, we want to see a shift in the
1: mindset of how people view the refugee community. I believe the book will do that. The book is certainly a tool to help do that. What's one action you would like people listening to our conversation right now to take as a result of listening? Well, certainly go buy the book. You can go to refugeeworkforce.com to do
2: that. But I recognize not everyone's going to do that. And so I I think if everyone listening could take one action, it's simply this, have a conversation with someone who is not like you. Engage intentionally in a conversation with someone who grew up in a different culture than you did. You'll come away from that conversation with different insights and perspectives that you didn't have before it. So in the next time period in your life, few days, after listening to this, intentionally engage in a conversation, ask questions of someone who is not like you.
1: Okay. So Chris, I love that. And you listening, you'll hear this again from me when I'm wrapping up, man, I want to echo that challenge. Yeah. Buy the book. That's a good one, but have a conversation with someone different than you and have it with an open heart and an open mind willing to have your preconceived notions shattered. Is there anything else to say that puts a bow on this conversation for you at the moment?
2: Kevin, I remember a quote that I heard when I was kind of in the process of trying to determine if I wanted to move forward with this whole venture of staffing company to place refugees into jobs. And it was a quote from a pastor at a conference. He said simply this, let your tables be filled with people who are not like you. And something about that quote just That, I think, may have been the moment where my purpose became pretty clear. And it wasn't just like, this is a good idea. I think this could have impact in the world. But it was, these words are calling me to a purpose that I cannot deny, a purpose that's worth me pursuing, even if it fails. Mm -hmm. And so I think in terms of wrapping a bow on the conversation, it's just, as you mentioned earlier, say yes to something. Take action on something. You'll be better for it. You'll learn from it. Even in failure, you'll figure something out. You'll learn more about yourself. And so for those who are out there who don't quite have a sense of what their purpose is, put yourself in a position to learn more. And the best way to do that is to take action.
1: All right. And where do people go to learn more about
2: you and your work? You can go to refugeeworkforce.com to learn more about the book. And then Amplio Recruiting is the name of our business. You can find us on all the social media platforms, A-M-P-L-I-O, Amplio Recruiting.
1: And what does Amplio mean?
2: It's the Spanish word for ample. So, the idea that there's an abundance and ample supply of individuals who want to work and uh, companies who need to hire. Chris,
1: thanks for joining. This was really fun and fulfilling for me. Well, I've been looking
2: to this for a while, and I'm grateful for your authenticity, Kevin, and I look forward to continuing engaging in this community.
1: Hey, thanks for joining, Chris, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. There's just so many rich elements to it. I love how Chris found his way to purpose Through conversations, let me put an S on that, and through a windy road. There's some Catholic literature that said God writes straight with crooked lines. I believe Chris can attest to that, so can I. But I love the fact that through these crooked lines, through this zigzag, there were conversations one at a time that opened the door, led the way. There truly is something to deep, rich conversations. And I love that Chris and Pleo stumbled onto something that is truly win, win, win. And personally, I believe that one added benefit of purpose-powered business is that it's always win-win-win. Everybody wins when purpose is at the core of your business. And then I just want to echo this challenge that Chris extended to us. And I want to say us, that's right. You and me were invited into this challenge. Let your table be filled with people not like you. Not like you is a broad category. So I invite you to find someone not like you today. If not today, the next couple of days. And sit down and engage them in a deep, rich, meaningful conversation. And then let me know what happens. You can email me, kevin at higherpurposepodcast.com. Or you can call or text me, 678-744-5111, and let me know what happened when you did. Hey, until next time, I invite you to live, love, and lead with purpose.
0: Do you have a high-stakes initiative that is stuck, stalled out, or stymied, and you're not sure what to do now and how to forge a path forward? The situation is not as grim as you think it is. We can help. Contact Kevin to explore how a winning conversation may be exactly what you need to break the gridlock, unite your team in purpose, and accelerate traction. Call 678-744-5111 or email Kevin at higherpurposepodcast.com.